Hey, good morning to you. If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to the first book and the last chapter in the first book, all right? So Genesis 50 is where we're going to be. Uh, you can use your phone and tablet, whatever you like to. If you're like, I got nothing, then uh, we got these big Jesus iPads on the side here. We're going to put those uh, up there as well. Um, again, Happy New Year to you and church family. Let me say thank you for a great 2018. The Lord used your uh, just allow yourself to be used by the Lord. 2018, we saw more people actually repent and trust Christ in in our ministries than we've ever seen in the history of our church. And so uh, give God glory for that. And also it's like lean in and as great as we're so grateful for that. But you know what? There's a a lot more folks we want to see, understand the good news. And so kind of lean in, uh, lean into that. 2019 should be a uh, wonderful year in the life of our church. A couple of the campuses in the next few months be praying that they would get in by Easter. It might be Easter, might be before, but Franklin and Swannanoa will uh, relaunch here in a, a couple of months with uh, new locations. And then, hey, also uh, leaders, let me say this, uh, thank you as well. I know that uh, next few weeks, I think at all the campuses, we have leadership training, and I think this campus is for this Wednesday. So again, thanks, uh, thanks for all you do there. Nothing happens uh, without leaders. And so thank you for being that kind of leader. All right, here's where we are. Uh, reset the table. As Caleb just said, let me just make two obvious, uh, obvious observations. Number one, the table is a metaphor. The table is a metaphor of relationships. It is a metaphor for uh, close relationships, family. Sometimes the table has been a place of great laughter and great joy. Sometimes it's a place of a lot of friction and a lot of conflict. But what it is, it's, it's your loved ones. That does include family, but that's not all that it is. And reset is not about New Year's resolutions. You really don't see a bunch in the Bible. You don't see anything in the Bible specifically about New Year's resolutions. Uh, what you do see a lot of is through the gospel, you see a whole lot of new life. Uh, healing of families, new beginnings, fresh starts, all right, the ability for God to do something great uh, in your life and in your family's life. One of my favorite verses is in the Old Testament book of Hosea. Hosea 6.3 says that, you know what, uh, his going is as certain as the dawn. That is, you know what, God at work, God at work is as certain as the fact that the sun came up this morning. So here's what, here's what we're hoping for over the next five or six weeks is that God would do a miracle in your family. He would do a miracle in your life, and that would begin today. It would actually begin today, and it would begin in you. Uh, There's not a whole lot of stuff that you can go back and erase. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this. He says, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. All right, so what we're doing today is we are starting where we are. And over the next six weeks, we're going to look at a, a number of different things. There's even a couple that aren't quite decided on yet. Uh, But we're going to look, I'm sure we're going to see things about distant marriages, prodigal children, uh, trouble with some uh, in-laws. Some of you want a family and can't have one. Some of you have a family and you prefer a different one. All things in between. And we got to look at grace. We want to look at healing. We want to look at how do we build that up. Uh, For some of you, this will be a tune-up. You'll be laying, okay, that's for me and I'm a grandparent and so now I know how to do this. Uh, Some of you, it's not a tune-up, it's an overhaul. It is a 911 call. You are here today, to be quite honest, you're here today because maybe you saw a commercial, maybe you got an invitation, and you're like, dude, I don't know if anything can work. If you knew how messed up our marriage was, if you knew how messed up my home life was, if you knew how distant and angry my siblings are with me, if you knew how long it's been since we even had a civil conversation with my loved ones, you would not say that. 
Let me just say again, uh, there's some people that were doubting in the Gospels, and what Jesus says is he looked at them and he said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So that's what we're praying for. And I'd ask you to pray. It's not just about a Sunday. It's about a journey that God wants to take you on that happens to begin the day. And what we have to do today is before we can build back on some relationships, we've got to clear away some of the rubble that invariably happens with relationships. We understand the vertical work that God does with us in the gospel then is supposed to overflow into those people that are close to us. But it's also obvious that there's some stuff that gets going on with our loved ones that if we don't know how to clear that out and process that in a biblical way, in a gospel-saturated way, we get stuck. And if we get stuck, what happens is stuff just starts to stink everywhere in the home. And I, my heart goes out to those families, and you can't get past the conflict, which leads to injury, and the injury leads to withdrawal, and the withdrawal just leads to more conflict, which leads to more injury, which leads to more withdrawal, and you're like, what is going to help that at all? Well, the big thing is you've got to figure out at least initially, how do I take out some of the junk that invariably collects? If you remember a few months ago, a few months ago, a few weeks ago when we had the snowmageddon, and it, was, it, it happened, and so I don't know about where you live, but where I live, they pick up the trash on Monday All right, so Monday, what we know is, all right, let's get the trash out there on Sunday night because you don't know when they're coming. They can come at 6.30, they can come at 7, we don't know. But they're going to be there, and they're going to be there fairly early. And so we get an email during Snowmageddon. It's like, listen, the trucks can't get out, so we can't pick up your trash this Monday. It'll be another week. And we're like, dog, man. Man, the Frank family goes through some stuff. and, And just two weeks of trash in the garage, man, it started smelling pretty funky. I mean, it's, I was like, man, we got to hope they come tomorrow. And it, one thing went to another, and I, and I forgot to put the trash out on the two-week notice. Well, that German Shepherd always comes in handy. And one of the things about a German Shepherd is they got some awesome hearing. And so we're sitting there, and it's like seven. I was kind of collecting stuff, maybe to, about ready to leave. And all of a sudden, those big ears just boom, they go up. And it's all, he, hears the garage, he hears the garbage truck. And I'm like, oh, the garbage truck, the garbage So I'm out, I'm running out there in gym shorts, trying to push this thing up a curb. Finally, because I was like, if we don't get it, if it's three weeks in a row, man, no telling what impact it's going to have on our home. And I say that to simply say this, please hear me on this. We're going to kind of cover a few things that are delicate this morning, but please just say, God, give me the grace, give me the grace to clear out some of the trash and stop the pain that is collected in my life and my family's life and let us at least start to go the right direction because every family in this room, you got some good stuff, you got some strong points, you've got some things that would be very admirable, you've also got some hurt You've got some disappointment. You've got some stuff that has been said that shouldn't have been said. You've got some stuff that hasn't been said that should have been said. You've got some fallout, some consequences. And if you don't deal with that, uh, an old Danish philosopher called it resentment, which is where we basically get our word resentment from. And what he was talking about was that sense of deep bitterness and resentment that comes after conflict and injury and you don't deal with it, it's not just about what was done to you, it becomes so big, and it's about really who you are. It's your identity as a family. That's what we're aiming at today. Well before we start building over the next few weeks, we got to clear out some stuff. All right, a lot of places I could go in the Bible. The Bible does not sugarcoat the messed up families. You could go to Eli and the trouble with his sons, Noah, the trouble with his sons. You could go, you could go anywhere you want to. It's a bunch of messed up families. So you're not going to find the model family in the Bible. You're not going to find the model family here at church. 
Let me be clear. You might be tempted right now to look across the aisle or look over here and you look and see some perfect family. It's like, man, they got all their junk together. They're so awesome. It's like they're not. They're not awesome. You just don't know them that well. Now, there are some healthier families and there's some unhealthy families, but nobody in this room is like, man, we got our stuff together. It doesn't happen. Every family is sinful. Therefore, every family is going to have some hurt. So the question is, how do we process that? Where we're going to go, we're going to go to a guy in the Old Testament book of Genesis named Joseph. Now, Joseph is a guy that actually has almost a quarter of the entire book of Genesis, which actually, in some ways, Genesis is the most important book in your Bible. But a quarter, from chapter 37 all the way to chapter 50, it's all about Joseph. Now, it's all about Jesus, but Joseph is the character that it revolves around. And so I'm not going to read 14 chapters to you today. What I'm going to do is we're going to, I want to give you caught up on the story, and then we're going to read the last part. And really, it's a, great, it's a great scene. It's really family reconciliation. It's what you could pray that would happen and what we pray would happen in the next few weeks, in the next four or five weeks, or it might take a little bit longer to bear fruit. But it's that family reconciliation, words of affirmation and comfort, and all that, all that stuff being put aside and making some forward progress, all right? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read you the one verse, give you a spark note version of what the story is, and then we're going to read the rest of it, and then we'll land it, uh, the plane worth where we live, all right? So here's, here's the verse that kind of sets it up a little bit. And uh, again, from uh, 37 to 50 covers somewhere between 20 to 25 years. So here's, here's kind of where, it, here's where it, it starts off, and then I'll, I'll uh, bring us up to speed. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, all right? So you got a big family, got a bunch of brothers dad dies. They said, quote, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back. Pay us back is our word we use for vengeance. It's like, you took from me, I will take from you. You hit me, I will hit you. Very natural. It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So again, if you are not familiar with this story, and many people are not, uh, let, me give you the, uh, let me give you the flyby. Go back to chapter 37 sometime, and here's the story that you will see. Uh, Joseph, you've heard of mama's boys. Joseph was a daddy's boy, all right? Daddy had Joseph as his favorite son. Now, he shouldn't have done that. Actually, if you look at it carefully, it is a case of generational sin, all right? Jacob had learned from his dad, Isaac, and then he passes that down. It was the sin of favoritism. All right, he looked at Joseph. Joseph wasn't the oldest, but he looked at Joseph and he's like, basically, I like Joseph more. Now, we don't know if he articulated that, but he certainly showed it and the brothers noticed it. In chapter 37, it simply says this. It says, and the brothers saw, quote, the brothers saw their father loved Joseph more and they hated him. Not the dad, they hated Joseph. They're like, man, you are the apple of our dad's eye and we hate it. And then you get that whole coat of many colors thing, which uh, some of you are like, that's a great little flannel graph. That's an awesome little story. It actually means, it actually is like the coat of long sleeves. And it was an ornate robe that you would give. Now, you would typically give that to the older son, which Joseph is not. But here's, the, here's one of the cool things about it if you got that coat. If you got that coat, you were then relinquished from having to do manual labor. I mean, how awesome is that? You get the coat and all your brothers, they can be out raking leaves and you're in there playing PlayStation and it's like, this is awesome. I don't have to do this. So I don't know many 17-year-olds that could take that kind of attention, but there he was. He was dad's favorite. 
And then he has these dreams. Uh, if you look back, he has these dreams. And basically the dreams are this. They're out in the field and you've got this wheat that's real up, uh, up tall and you've got this other wheat that falls down before this taller wheat. And he's like, hey, I got what's going on. Here's the interpretation. He tells his brothers at dinner, let's say one night. He goes, what's going to happen is what this dream means is you all are going to bow to me one day. You guys are going to be subservient and submissive to me and I'm going to be your boss. Maybe, you know, mom and dad are like, hey, don't talk to your brother and sister that way. And it's like, well, I had an, another dream, mom and dad, and you guys actually bow down to me. Now, again, I've been around a bunch of 17-year-olds before, been 17 before. I know I, you can almost rest assured he did not say that with a great deal of humility. All right, a 17-year-old like that, he's like, you're going to bow down to me. Pops, you're going to bow down to me as well. Doesn't go real swift. The resentment builds. One day... He says, go check on your brothers. Your brothers are out doing manual labor. Get on the four-wheeler, drive out there, go to, go to your brothers and check and see how they are doing. Well, they see him coming and they're like, hey, let's kill him. I mean, they are so resentful of him. One brother talks them out of it. They're like, okay. They throw him in a pit. They decide what to do. They sell him into slavery. They sell him into slavery they take his coat that he was wearing, they dip it in some blood, tear it up, and then they go back and show dad, hey, dad, the apple of your eye, unfortunately, he probably got eaten. He got attacked by some wild animal, and we are so sorry, but Joseph is dead. Well, Joseph isn't dead. Joseph, again, has been sold into slavery. He eventually ends up getting bought by a guy named Potiphar, who's a military leader. God's with him. This phrase says God was always with him. And then it says, and God granted him success in all that he did. That's like repeated three or four times in these scenes in Joseph's life. Well, Joseph rises to prominence in Potiphar's life. Potiphar's wife is probably don't need to go there. I'm just saying Potiphar's Potiphar's wife uh, likes Joseph. Joseph's like, how can I do this to God? Because of his integrity, he gets thrown in jail. Even in jail, God raises him up. And then the story kind of takes a turn where Pharaoh basically needs a dream interpretation. Like, hey, there's a guy named Joseph. And so he's like, tell me what my dream's about. And here's basically the dream. And this is where our story kind of kicks in. He says there's going to be seven years of abundance and then there's going to be seven years of famine. That's what's going to happen. So for seven years in an agrarian society, you're going to have all this abundance and rain and crops, but then after that, you're going to have seven years of drought and you better get prepared for it. And so all of a sudden, this guy, this whole, this whole journey ends up being where Joseph is the number two guy to the most powerful man in the world and the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And so as we kind of walk through the story, and before we get to this last one, there's a point in time, you know what, where the brothers come in there, and they don't recognize him because they've been gone 20, 25 years, and he looks like an Egyptian, walks like an Egyptian, talks like an Egyptian, but he recognizes them. And so as you walk through the story, here's, here's what's happened. Uh, Joseph is kind of given responsibility. You get everybody ready. You put grain away. You put food away for seven years. So at this point... The drought has happened. Brothers, providentially, they're down in the promised land. They don't have any food. They got to come up to Egypt. They come up to Egypt. Joseph starts to deal with all of this kind of stuff, forgives them even before this meeting that we're going to see. And uh, I begin to think, what would I have done? Let's just be, let's be honest a little bit in church, all right? Your bro- I got three brothers. 
I will guarantee you, I am not godly enough. If my three brothers had sold me into slavery, thrown me into the pit, then all of a sudden they show up in front of me and I'm the boss, man, they're in trouble, bro. I mean, they are in trouble. That's why he says later on, don't fear, because they're thinking, he is going to kill us. He is going to kill us. Now, I try to think of a metaphor that would show what is going on in some of our homes and what could have gone on in Joseph's home. True stories, there are houses out there called spite houses. Y'all ever heard of them? Spite houses. Let me show you a few. Spite houses are what they sound like. They're houses that were built because, out of spite. All right, this one's, this one's one that came out of a divorce, actually. And this divorce, what happened is the judge said that you, the husband, you've got to build a house of the exact square footage and the exact replica of the current house you're living. But the judge did not say where, where that it had to be put. So this guy builds a house for his divorced wife in his spite. He puts it in wetlands and doesn't run water to it. So the house is useless, all right? He just did it out of spite. Here's another one. Um, This one, okay, this one was two brothers that got crossways. You see the little tiny building? The little tiny building is the little baby building that baby brother built. The building next to him, the much bigger one, is the brother, and they were supposed to split it halfway. Big brother takes more than his share, and he's like, I hate that, I hate that. So he builds that little house in that space for the sole purpose of blocking his view of the harbor and blocking the sunlight that was trying to come into his brother's place. It's like anger. All right, a couple more of these. Uh, this one, I think this one's the funniest because this was another divorce, and the house on the right is what was given to the husband, but then the, the, the front yard was given to the wife. And she is so angry at him, she builds a four and a half foot wide house right in the front yard just to bug him, just to bug him. And those of you that are kind of having a strong uh, ability to say, man, I don't like the HOA, I don't like the neighborhood, and here's one that'll help you out, all right? This one, actually, what they did is the HOA or the tenants or whatever they rejected the um, redesign or they rejected the, what, the renovation the guy wanted to do, and he got so mad that they rejected that. He said, well, you, got, you can't do anything about the exterior, so he paints it candy stripe red just to bug his neighbors. And then to sort of put the final little needle into the side, notice on the upper right-hand side, he deliberately doesn't paint it all the way up just to bug them, all right, just to bug them. And you're like, well, that's so silly, and here's what, my, here's what we know the truth is. It's so easy for a house and a home to turn into a spite house. It's very, very easy when things happen that we wish didn't happen. When things are said, when things are not said, when action is taken, when sins of omission, sins of commission, when certain things happen, when injury is done, when wounds are taken, what happens is if we don't know how to process it and deal with it in a biblical gospel-saturated way, we end up living in a spied house. So we got to figure out, how does this work? Let me read you the verses, and then we'll, 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 we'll land the plane where we live. Here it is. Janet, this is verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph. See, they're still not sure. They find out it's Joseph. They're still not sure what's going to take place. They send a message first, and the message is, quote, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin. What sin? What sin? The sin of throwing him into a pit and then selling him into slavery, that one. Because they did evil to you. Now, before some of you kind of put up your resistance a little bit, please understand, when you show grace to somebody that's injured you, there's some things that is not. 
It is not pretending that somebody didn't do something to you. Uh, Please do not think that I have not thought of some of the wickedness that has taken place in this room toward you. You take enough people in what you have and enough families and a bunch of messed up people, I understand. You know what? You get a bunch of sinners in a household, which we are, that does not lead to no injury, no conflict. But understand, it's not lessening what they did. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept. (laughs) Joseph obviously was a four on the Enneagram, you can tell really easily. But Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Look at the last few verses and then we'll, we'll go for us. His brothers also came and they fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Prophecy fulfilled, right? But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Why? Because they were afraid. We know what we've done to him. We know what we deserve. We know what he now has the power to do. But Joseph is like, am I in the place of God? Last two verses. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. How? How how did that happen? How did that happen? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You know what he's doing? He's understanding the providence and the sovereignty of God. Not that God caused the evil, but that God is so great and so powerful and so sovereign, he can take the wickedness and move it into something good. And in this case, it was feeding all of these people when the famine hit. And here's verse 21. This is what I would just call the fruit of whether or not we've dealt with some of this stuff before. So do not fear I will provide for you and your little ones. He's saying, I'll take care of you and your kids. I'll give them food. I've been doing this for 29 years. I've looked at this passage hundreds of times. I have never, ever noticed the last sentence. And I thought, but that's the key. That's the key to know what was going on. And here's what it says. Thus, he comforted them. He empathized with them. He empathized with the people that sold him into slavery and he spoke kindly to them. And so when we look at this story, what can turn the corner for your family? What can break the cycle of that injury withdrawal, injury withdrawal? What can grant some momentum into your family? Because again, some of you, it's like right below the surface. All it takes is some little, tiny little thing, and the whole thing blows up. Why is that? It's because there's just stuff right underneath the surface that's never been dealt with. So like, how do I deal with it? How do I deal with it? Let's just look at his story. Let me, get, let me draw out a couple of different things. The first one is this, is obviously in Joseph's life is this, is you have, you got to know grace yourself personally. I mean, why did Joseph, Joseph had already forgiven them five chapters earlier, But why is he so humble? Why is he so gracious even after he's forgiven them? Why can he say, you know what, don't fear. Am I God? No, I'm not. Because he knew grace personally. He knew that God had shown great grace to him. Please hear me on this. I don't know some of you, but please hear me on this. People have sinned against you. I understand that. They have sinned against you. Sometimes it's been very big in the actual action. I mean, I, there's some horrific stuff that has happened. Sometimes, for some of us, it's not a big, big thing, but it seems really big because it's somebody real close to us, somebody we love, somebody we trust, somebody that should have protected us, somebody that should have acted a certain way and didn't. And so because of their closeness, it makes it much, much bigger. 
But please hear me on this. In our hurt, in our woundedness, we often lose sight of the fact that the most offended party, the most sinned against one, is actually God. God has been sinned against. Like, what do you mean God has been sinned against? Let's just, let's take it this way. When Jesus was here, think about that last week, actually right before Easter, we're going to take about three weeks and just kind of walk through the whole last hours of Jesus' life as we prepare for the empty tomb. But think about it. Jesus is there. He got, he's been harassed. He's been belittled. He's been flogged. He's been beaten. He eventually gets put on a cross. I mean, what could he have said while he's on the cross? I mean, he could have said, angels, come down here and smite these people. He could have said that. He could have said, Father, why have you abandoned me on this cross? could have said that. He could have done a lot of things, but as he looked down and his mom's up there weeping at the foot of the cross, he says the first of seven things that he says on the cross, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Forgive them? How is that even possible? So here's what I want you to say. Today there are sins both by you and towards you, by omission, commission, thought, word, deed, motives, We've done that. It's all been right in the face of Almighty God. And that's why he says, forgive each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Before we sit there and say, I'm going to forgive, you have to understand the grace that's been shown towards you. To be honest, I don't understand how you can ever forgive somebody if you yourself do not personally know the grace and the forgiveness in the gospel. I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you do that because that has got to be bigger than this. All right, there's a German pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And there was a time, he's the German pastor, he was over there and then he went to safety. He's like, how can I be in safety when my countrymen are dying in Hitler's hand? And so what he does is he goes back to Germany. He's got this discipleship school and he's discipling these young men and he's pretty firm with them. He's pretty harsh with them and he's very demanding of them. And he's taking a walk with one of his leaders one day, and his leader's like, man, you're kind of being pretty demanding. You're kind of being pretty harsh. You're really expecting a lot from these men. And as they're walking, they get up to a hill, and Bonhoeffer listens to him, and finally Bonhoeffer says, okay, I understand what you're saying. But then he says, look right over there. And he points like two miles into the distance. And in the distance, you could see Hitler building up this massive war machine that was going to cause so much destruction. And what Bonhoeffer did, he said, listen, he goes, he goes, he goes, this, this, meaning the discipleship, this must be stronger than that. Loved one, you've got to understand when it comes to somebody injuring you, this, the gospel in your life has got to be stronger than what somebody has done against you. If you're like, I can, I can, I can, then the cross has actually become too small. It's become too small. And what the prayer has to be is, God, let the cross become much, much bigger in my life. Can you imagine what this would do just the married folks in this room today? Just those of you that are privileged to be married. Just think about this. Paul tells a young pastor, he says, you know what? Jesus came to save sinners of who I am the chief. I am the foremost of sinners. Now, quick little exegetical question for you. The apostle Paul, was he exaggerating? I mean, he's not exaggerating. But are you saying that he was actually a bigger sinner than like Nero or Herod or Judas Iscariot? No way. What the apostle Paul was saying is, you know what? I see myself as the biggest sinner. When I understand the forgiveness has been given me, when I think about grace, I don't think about the grace they need. I think about the grace that I need. Can you imagine if just in your house, the first thing was I'm a sinner first and I'm sinned against second. 
you imagine when you get all ticked off at your family? It's like you first think, you know what, first I have sinned against God and he's been so gracious to me. When you do that, all of a sudden your demeanor, your tone, your volume, your words, all of that stuff ends up being in the right perspective. It's not that you don't have hard conversations. It's just that, you know what, I am sinner first and I am sinned against second. You're like, well, what do I do then? Well, let me just, this is the hard part right here. What the text is illustrating is, and this is what you can do today, is, you gotta, is, is giving grace. You give grace to somebody who doesn't deserve, you're like, they don't deserve it. That's kind of the point of grace, all right, that they don't deserve it. They don't deserve the grace you're giving them. Joseph had actually forgiven them, but again, a few chapters earlier, you see the fruit of it here. Uh, we've taught on this numerous times. We probably see it two or three times a year. You're like, why would you make sure that that's there? Well, I'd say there's a bunch of reasons. Number one, it's in the Bible a ton, all right? Number two, the vertical thing you've got going on with God through Jesus needs to overflow into your other relationships. If it doesn't, First John says, you probably don't have anything going on in the first place. And thirdly, you and I live in a sinful, fallen world, all right? This is not heaven. You're going to get hurt, and you're going to hurt some other people, so you and I better learn how to deal with it when it happens, well, here's what I want to do. Even though we've done this a few times before, I want to cover two or three misunderstandings about what we're talking about giving grace, okay? So here's, let me just knock down three or four little bullet points, all right? When we talk about giving grace, oftentimes this is a private matter between you and God. It's right here as you sit in church and you're like, you know what? God, this person has done this to me and because of your grace toward me, me wanting to glorify you in my life, God, I release this person from what they owe me. I do that. It's between, you don't have to call them up necessarily and go, hey, bro, I forgave you in church today, okay? I forgave you for what you, and half the time they don't even know what they've done. Now, if somebody came up to you last week and said, please forgive me, you're like, I can't, I won't, I shouldn't, I'm not going to, then a phone call or a letter very well might be appropriate. But for most of us, this is a private matter between you and God. Here's the one that helps a lot of us. It is not diminishing to sin against us. It's not diminishing to sin against us. It's not saying, oh, you know what? Oh, parents, they always get divorced. Or you know what? People always cheat on their spouses. Or oh, you know what? They always abuse people. It's not, can you imagine Joseph saying that? It's like, oh, siblings always have a rivalry. Siblings always sell their, sell their brother into slavery. They always do that. That's not what he did. He said, it's evil what you did. It's wicked what you, here's the, how are you going to give grace? How are you going to forgive somebody if you will not even show and not even think about and not even designate what it is you're forgiving? It's not some denial. It's not some, it's not, it's not a feeling. It's not a feeling. Corey Tinboom put it great. She had been abused by a bunch of SS guards in World War II. And what she did is she said, you know what? Forgiveness is a choice that you make regardless of the temperature of your heart. It's like, I don't feel like really giving grace. It's not a matter of feeling. It's a matter of testimony. The fact that, you know what? We're not the PTA, okay? We're not the John Birch Society. We're the sons and daughters of Almighty God and Jesus Christ. And that's what he gave us the example for. And that's what he calls you and I to do. You're like, that's hard. No, it's not. It's impossible. It's impossible for you to do in your own power, in your own willpower. That'll dry up in a heartbeat. Here's another one that might help you. It doesn't necessarily mean, even though you see it here in the story, it doesn't necessarily mean you've got to be reconciled to that person. 
Now, some people argue about it, and they would usually use uh, Luke 17, the first four verses, about if a person comes and uh, basically repents and comes to you, then you uh, forgive him. And if he, you know, and that's, uh, that is the only place in the Bible that you look at that it says, that gives the idea that, okay, they've got to come and apologize before you forgive. Every other place is unilateral, unequivocal, immediate forgiveness. What Luke 17 is communicating is, all right, that's when you actually, forgiveness is internal, reconciliation is external. There's another way to put it. So, like what is, reconciliation take, we've said it this way, reconciliation takes two. You can forgive regardless of what they say. To be reconciled, it means they need to repent. They need to come back. They need to actually say it's not, it's, it's, it was wrong what I did. You say, how do you see this in the story? Joseph forgives them prior to this final scene, but in the previous scenes, he tests them and he does not trust them. He tests them for a while, trying to see if they really changed and only after that do they get reconciled. So here's another way to put it. Reconciliation can often take some degree of time. So people come up, sometimes people will look at you and say, I thought you were a Christian, okay? How come we are not whatever? How come it's not back to normal? It's like, listen, I can forgive and still hold some boundaries up, okay? I can for-. You're like, how do you know if they're serious? How do you know if they're repentant? You don't know. Only God knows. But you can look at the fruit and say, man, if they changed it all. So forgiving and reconciliation are not the same thing. Let me give you a couple more and then we'll move on. It's not lack of consequences, Okay. Please hear me in our society today. This is, the church has made some terrible mistakes in this regard. Forgiveness does not mean no consequences. You can forgive somebody and call the police on them, is another way to put it. Let me say it again. Somebody does that, just if they do a criminal activity, you can forgive and they can go to jail. We got a great jail ministry, all right? We will go visit them, but that might be exactly where they need to go. And then this last one, and here's what I'm going to ask you to do. It's a one-time choice, but it's going to take some time. I'm not going to lie to you and say, okay, if you sit there and make a conscious choice today to name it, name the person and name the pain. Got Uncle Ron took this from me. I'm making a choice right now. To forgive. I'm not saying that some of those feelings of whatever, shame, guilt, anger, that that is not, that's going to be gone by tomorrow. It's a process, but it starts with a choice. So let me ask you this question. Who is it that is in debt to you? Who's in debt to you? That's what, that's what forgiveness means. It means somebody did something, and when they did, they incurred a debt. They took something, and therefore they owe you something. Who is it that owes you? What is it that they owe you? Is it the father who walked out when you were little and owes you a lifetime of memories and summer vacations and school visits? Is it some pervert who took your purity? Is it some ex-spouse that busted your dreams of a happy, healthy, functioning home? Is it a spouse who betrayed your trust and cheated on you? Who is it and what is it that they, what is it that they owed you? Like, I don't want to do it. 
I understand. I, I, as I said, there's really no way, unless you know it, can you give it. When you know it, when the cross becomes bigger than what they did to you, then you and I start to act like the sons and daughters of God. I was with a guy yesterday who's the son of actually my doctor who did my cancer treatments a while back. And so I was, he's got a son in college and we were just talking and so forth like that. And the more he talked, I was like, I started cracking up. He's like, why? What's so funny? I was like, man, you talk just like your dad. Your, your mannerisms, your voice inflection, your, even the trash you talk in this, in this little sports game, that sounds like your dad. And he took it as a compliment. He took it as a case, dad's a good man. That's a small little picture of what Jesus actually says in the Gospels when it says, when you are kind to your enemies, when you forgive those who have hurt you, he said then, he said then, he said then you are sons of the Most High. It's like father, like son, like father, like son. It means, you know what, you're starting to bear a family resemblance. Like, how do I know if I've done it? And then we'll, then we'll do it. How do I know if I've done it? It'll be this last one. Is even though it's internal, it has external fruit. You notice, I mean, the last sentence is the one that's proof. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them comforted them and what do you talk about what seriously what do you think they talked about it's not this isn't a true this isn't pass fail because we don't know but what do you think they talked about I mean it's been it's been a long long time and what do you think they talked about the only thing I can think of is maybe they talked about the death of their dad that was what kind of held them together it's like man dad was really a great dad and then even that could lead to some bad stuff because like yeah he liked you more but that's not what it's not what happens he he in somehow some way empathized with them some way, and spoke kindly to them. That means the words that you speak reveal what's in there. Jesus said it this way. He said, you know what? The words that you speak reveal what's already in your heart. If you don't believe that, just go on Facebook or Instagram or especially the darkest place, the land of Mordor, Twitter. Just go on there and you will see. And it's like, yeah, those people shouldn't. It's not those people. It's us. It's the Christian community. Just go on Facebook sometime and see the vitriol, not on black and white issues, not on right or wrong issues, just on preferences. And I didn't like you doing this, and I didn't like you doing that. God help us in that. And God help you and I to say, I'm not going to be a part of that. You're like, what am I going to write then? (laughs) That's a different problem, okay? You write something different. You write words of grace. I mean, what what would words of kindness, like what he just said there, and he spoke to them, he spoke to them words of kindness. Here's a few things that it might mean to you. Maybe for you, it's looking over at your family and giving a word of commitment. It's like, man, I know I griped and moaned about even coming to church today, and I didn't want to come to church. I had to cancel my tea time, and I told you I'd go this one time. Maybe what you need to do is look at them and go, all right, I understand. We need some direction. We need some godly counsel. We need to, so I'm, I'm committing that we are here in the weeks ahead just to learn and to change, all right? I'm not saying it's easy. If, every, if, it, if, if changing a family was easy, everybody would be doing it, and that's not it. Maybe it's a word of apology. Maybe you know, man, I have not done what I should. I'm the one that injured, and I've not done that. Maybe it's a word of just gratitude of like, thank you, thank you, thank you for being the this for me or that for us or thank you for what, whatever it is. Maybe it is a word of uh, remorse. I know I said that and I know it stings and I'm deeply sorry that that's the 
case. You're like, that, that, that's not easy. That's not easy. And I would say, unless it's in the power of the Spirit of God and from a reservoir of God's grace, you can't do it. But listen, he's not asking for us to be perfect. He's not asking for perfection. That's what you might hear. He's like, well, I can't be. He's not asking for perfection. All right? Perfection was Jesus dying on a cross for you. That was perfection. That's not what he's asking. Okay? But he is asking for direction to say, you know what? I'm going to take some steps of obedience that I need to take for the good of my family, but mainly for the glory of God. You're like, I don't even know how to start. You just got to start. I'll give you one example, and then we'll, we'll pray. Colossians 3 uses this same language, and it starts off, and it says, clothe yourself with, and he's listed, humility and kindness, and then he ends it by saying, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. Clothe yourselves. You're like, clothing yourself is easy. Clothing your, if, if you think getting dressed, putting clothes on is easy, you have never had kids, okay? You've never had kids. Man, when kids, when kids are small, remember that? When kids are small, they're like, I mean, it is such a gift of God when they can put pants on, man. When they put their pants on, they're like, it is, it is awesome. It is phenomenal. It's a new day. You're like, that is great, all right? And then, then the day comes when they can tie their shoes, and it's like, Eureka, it, 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 is it ever going to get any better than this? And then, just so you know, then they get their own sense of style or lack of sense of style or whatever you want to call it. I mean, I'll just, I'll just say, did I tell you that my son actually got best dressed at T.C. Robertson? Did I tell you that? All right. I'm not sure if it was facetious or if it was serious, but best dressed because, man, sense of style. But how does it start? It starts off when they put the pant on, when they put the shoes on. You know what? You're like, way to go, buddy. Way to go, buddy. You celebrate progress, and that's what we want today, some progress, some direction. 